You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. All right. Well, if you have the book of Acts opened, turn to chapter 8. So if you're tuning in with us today, welcome uh, to this internet gathering of Redemption Church. And so we have been walking chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the book of Acts. It's kind of what we do here at Redemption Church. We walk through books of the Bible, letting God's word take the the focus and the center stage of, of this time of teaching and preaching that we do every time we gather together. And so today we find ourselves in Acts chapter 8, verse 4 through 25. And so I'm going to read the text for us today and then uh, pray and ask for God's help. And then we will see what God has to teach us from his word this morning. And we come to his word with expectancy and joy. So here's Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his (laughs) magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we 
ask for your help, Lord, that as your word is opened, as it's been read, Father, we pray that our hearts might be receptive to the truths found in your word. Lord, your word is truth. Lord, it is without error. It is a reliable guide. Lord, it is your very word spoken to us. And so, Father, I pray that we might hear the true things found in your word. And, Lord, that you would be with me as I attempt to, to preach and to proclaim your word. Lord, that you would use my words to build up your church and to draw men and women unto you who have yet to hear and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Father, we pray for your help. And, Lord, we rely on you now. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, as we continue this series through the book of Acts, we have already recalled how the Holy Spirit has brought great power upon the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. At the very beginning of the book of Acts, we remember all the way back in chapter 1, we remind ourselves how Jesus, right before he ascended into heaven, told the disciples to wait in Jerusalem because they would receive power at the arrival of the Holy Spirit. So as we come to Christ, we realize that when we trust in Jesus, Jesus gives us the power of the Holy Spirit, and that powerful Holy Spirit exists in our lives, willing to, to seal the work of redemption God has done in our hearts, but also to enable us to give testimony to others of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so in our weakness, the Holy Spirit comes and, and gives power to our ministry. You know, we might stumble with our words, but the, the Spirit will give power to those words as we bear testimony about Jesus. We might lack the, the energy to continue in those moments in which we're tired and fatigued, but the Spirit will give power to our testimony and give us supernatural strength to persevere. And we, in our weakness, we might shy away from suffering and shrink back when persecution begins to come, but the Spirit will give us courage in those days of trial and testing. You see, the Holy Spirit dwells in the heart of the believer, the Lord Jesus Christ, and then God has given to his people spiritual power through the Holy Spirit. So in different seasons of the church's history and life, the Holy Spirit has been given to the church with varying intensities of spiritual power. And no episode in the history of the church has had as much power as these first few decades of the church's existence. You know, God can undoubtedly do miracles through his church today. But there was a, a supernatural manifestation of spiritual power in the early church that was uniquely intense that was of uniquely high frequency. The sheer number recorded in the book of Acts and how regular miracles occurred during this time through the church, this authenticates the message of the apostles as they went about first proclaiming and heralding the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so because of this, because of the power of their testimony and the authentication of their testimony with spiritual power through these miracles and signs, what happens is that the church began to gain rapid traction. Many people began to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So as believers in Jesus, as believers in Christ, you and I, we possess the same Holy Spirit that the apostles first possessed back at Pentecost on that first day. 
And that same Holy Spirit not only filled the apostles with great power, but that same Holy Spirit fills us, his church today, here in 2020, with that same power. However, the, the pursuit, the obsession of spiritual power, particularly in obsessions over the miraculous, that can often become a fool's errand. We have to be careful. Even Christians today who possess the full power of the Holy Spirit, we can often find ourselves becoming like the, the crowd of John chapter 6. I don't know if you remember them. This is this crowd that, that had been a part of the 5,000, that had eaten the, the bread and the fish that Jesus miraculously multiplied and fed them all. And after that, they just began to demand more and more supernatural signs. They wanted more miracles, more bread. Because they didn't really long for Jesus, they really just wanted the miraculous signs. Instead, they just wanted another magic show, a magic show that would culminate with the satisfaction of their appetites. You see, sadly, I think many have become like the Pharisees and scribes who approach Jesus and who demand a sign, a, a miraculous testimony of power. And I think we should heed Jesus' words today. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Because even though we possess the power of the Holy Spirit, we ought to exercise caution. And we must be cautious against this dangerous lust after spiritual power, this obsession over the miraculous. Because this lust for spiritual power is usually not driven by love for Christ, but is often driven by a love for an idol. We seek the gift, not the giver of the gift. We seek divine power, but we do not seek God himself. You see, our text today provides a strong word of caution about this hellish pursuit of spiritual power as we see the gospel arrive to the Samaritans. Because our text here, Acts chapter 8, verse 4 through 25, this is what we see. We see Philip arrive in Samaria, and he begins to preach the gospel, and he preaches the gospel not just with powerful words, but powerful signs as he performs many miracles. Demons are cast out. The lame are walking again, right? And so we see this supernatural display of, of power, and we see this guy named Simon, who becomes enamored with, with Philip and his ability to do these miracles, and he superficially attaches himself to the church and hopes that he too might gain this sort of power. You see, through this text, we learn about the nature of the Spirit's power in our lives, and it also gives us a warning. It warns us of the danger of pursuing power instead of Christ himself. So here's the sermon summary. The Holy Spirit brings power upon those who humbly believe and condemnation on those who lust for power. I'll give you a moment to jot that down if you want to write it down. The Holy Spirit brings power upon those who humbly believe and condemnation on those who lust for power. So as we begin working through this text, we're going to think through what this text has to teach us on the nature of spiritual power. And the first thing I want to show us is from verse 4 through 8, and it's that spiritual power accompanies gospel preaching. Spiritual power accompanies gospel 
preaching. So last week, if you were here, if you tuned in through Facebook Live, we, we talked about the martyrdom of Stephen, this man who, who died for the cause of Christ, the first Christian martyr, and we see that Stephen's death sparks a great persecution that began to ramp up with increasing intensity. So much so that the opposition had been building against the church that once Stephen died, the floodgates of of violent resistance and persecution against the church began to just be unleashed throughout the whole city of Jerusalem. So much so that the Christians had to flee for their lives. So many Christians had to scatter outside of Jerusalem to go to Judea and Samaria. And as persecution came, we see that the gospel also spread outside of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria, just as Jesus said that it would. And we see Philip is one of those guys that gets scattered outside of Jerusalem, and he goes into the region of Samaria, and as he goes there to take refuge, he goes and shares the gospel as well. Now, who is this Philip? Well, this Philip is the the one that Luke just introduced us to, along with Stephen, back in Acts chapter 6. He was one of the seven that was chosen to care for the widows, the Hellenist widows. And so Philip is a a Greek speaker, and he fled the city of Jerusalem during the persecution. He takes refuge in Samaria, and as Philip is there, he's not just there hiding out and twiddling his thumbs, but he goes with the gospel. And as he travels to Samaria, this is where God has put him, and as he's there, he's going to share the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Samaritans. Now, the Samaritans were not considered Gentiles, but they were thought of as wayward Jews of the old northern kingdom of Israel that had been absorbed into the Assyrian Empire centuries prior. So if you remember back from Jesus's parable of the Good Samaritan, the Jewish people largely looked down upon Samaritans as those who were not full-blooded Hebrews. And so Philip goes and he he preaches the gospel to the Samaritans. And as he's preaching, large groups of people begin to gather to to hear Philip's message about Jesus as the Christ. And Philip preached the gospel with great spiritual power. And his words and his signs he performed, all of that began to gather the attention of the Samaritans. Look at Look at what the text says in verse 6 of chapter 8. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. As they heard Philip's testimony, as they saw the miracles he was doing, we see that the crowd becomes united in devoting their sole focus and attention on Philip. What does this guy have to say? What message is he preaching? What is this message about the Christ? You see, the Samaritans seem to be hanging off of Philip's every word. Because not only did he preach with power about Jesus as the Messiah, but the Holy Spirit performed miracles through Philip as he cast out demons, as the lame were healed. You see, as is the recurring pattern in the book of Acts, the Spirit often enacts miraculous signs through the church to verify the truthfulness of the gospel particularly when the gospel arrives in a new place and among a new group of people. So in Samaria, as Philip preached the word miracles, the the lost sons and daughters of Israel, that old northern kingdom, they responded and exploded 
Luke says, with great joy, the Samaritans received the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, the Spirit of God always accompanies those who preach the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, like Philip, you and I, we should preach the gospel wherever it is that God might take us. Remember, because of persecution, Philip hadn't planned in being in Samaria, but the persecution drove him there. He had to leave Jerusalem. And that only gives Philip the opportunity to, pre to, to preach Christ in a different location now. You see, as, as Chris Garner, our worship leader, constantly reminds us, at the end of every service, as we depart, we go with the gospel. Wherever it is God takes us, we go as messengers testifying of the Lord Jesus Christ. And each of us has different places that we go to. We have jobs we attend. We have neighborhoods that we live in. We have stores that we frequent. And throughout the week, God places us in random locations and places that we frequent and some that we hadn't even realized we would end up at. But each of those moments, each of those locales is an opportunity for the gospel to be preached, to be shared. And sometimes, as in the case of this virus and pandemic, it is God's providential work that we might not be traveling anywhere at all. Nevertheless, wherever God puts us, wherever he sends us, we are there to herald and preach and share and testify of the hope that we have in the resurrected Christ. You see, as Christians, we must believe confidently in the sovereignty of God over our lives. And we must trust that, that wherever he takes us, wherever he takes us, or whether he doesn't take us anywhere at all, whether he keeps us right where we are, we are there sovereignly put by God because there is great commission work that needs to be done. You see, as you preach the gospel, the Spirit will fill your words with great power as you bear witness to Christ. And though, though God might not accompany your evangelistic efforts with, with miracles, anytime the gospel is preached, we have to remind ourselves that the Spirit is at work. As, as Christians who, who preach Christ, we don't get to determine the manner in which the Spirit exerts his power through our lives, but we do know that the Spirit is ultimately at work, even secretly so, as he's drawing sinners through the testimony of our words of Christ, as he's drawing them to the Lord. You see, spiritual power doesn't come from eloquence or of the evangelist, nor does spiritual power come from the talents of the teacher. Rather, it is the Holy Spirit alone that gives spiritual power to the saints, as the Spirit determines that he will do. You see, whether we visibly see the power of the Spirit at work or whether the Spirit works secretly in the hearts of our hearers, as Christians, we know that our faithful sharing of the gospel is produced and happens and possesses spirit power. You see, spiritual power accompanies gospel preaching. We ought to expect that as we share the gospel, we will have spiritual power that accompanies our evangelistic efforts and works but as you preach the gospel with this sort of power, you may find that there will be others that will be jealous of such power. And that leads us to our second point this morning as we consider Simon the magician. Secondly, we see spiritual power will be envied by others. Now, a magician here named Simon was a part of this group of Samaritans, and he watched as Philip performed these miracles 
as he did all these wondrous works and preaching of great power as he captivated the attention. And as, as Simon saw Philip just captivate the attention of the whole city, I'm sure Simon was filled with a little bit of jealousy. I mean, before Philip had arrived, Luke tells us, Simon had all the attention. Everybody was focused on him. Everybody was enamored with him. I mean, Simon is kind of the first century version of Chris Angel, who amazed people with his magic tricks. And perhaps Simon dabbled with the occult and the witchcraft. In fact, he most likely did. So whatever the nature of his abilities, whether it's trickery or sorcery, Simon had the attention of the Samaritans. And he not only had their attention, but he had their praise and adulation. You see, the Samaritans believed that this charlatan possessed the power of God. And they even believed Simon to be a divine figure, calling him great. They might have even thought he was God in the flesh. So, so Simon was enamored with this influence, with the intention, with the, the power that he was able to possess over the Samaritans. And through his magic, he was able to captivate their attention and seize it and hold it. You see, people today can be addicted to the power of influence. You see, authority and influence often go hand in hand in our world today, don't they? Everyone online is trying to build a platform and jump on the rat race of trying to become a social media influencer. You see, with fame comes influence, and with influence comes power over others. You see, Simon's God is ultimately himself. The same motives that drove Simon to do what he will do is the same motives that, that drive a lot of people today. You see, Luke gives us the background of Simon because he wants us to understand what Simon really valued and treasured. And he did not treasure the Lord Jesus Christ. He treasured fame and attention and his own ego. You see, Simon was envious. And when others have power that you don't have, you can find yourself becoming envious as well, being jealous of them. You might think, you know, why, why don't I have the same level of influence as this person? Or why don't I have as many followers? Or why don't people pay attention to me like they pay attention to her? Why is he getting all the buzz? Those sorts of questions expose our own hearts. And as Simon watches Philip, and as Simon watches the effect that Philip is having over the Samaritans as, as that influence is stolen away from Simon and now given to Philip in the true gospel, and we ought to praise the Lord for that. But Simon admires Philip. He's enamored with Philip and the power that he wields. And he has this admiration for Philip that's also mixed with a little bit of jealousy. You see, while the Samaritans had paid attention to Simon for so long, Philip now has that attention. And so what does Simon do? Well, if you can't beat him, you might as well join him. And that's exactly what Simon does. He makes a profession of belief. He's baptized. And Luke seems to indicate, particularly in light of Peter's confrontation that we'll talk about in just a second with Simon, Luke seems to present Simon as a person whose faith was not genuine. He's a superficial believer, an unconverted, baptized person. So Luke presents Simon as a man 
who's really gripped with lust and power above everything else. He wants power, he wants control, he wants influence, and if he's got to join this whole Christianity thing in order to get that, then he will do it. You see, the, the fact of, of the remaining of, of his remaining powerless of the Samaritans made him turn to the church. You see, rather than having no influence at all, Simon settles for some influence as he superficially attaches himself to Philip and to Philip's ministry. So Luke indicates that what really impressed Simon was not the message of Simon about Jesus. In fact, what didn't seem to be Jesus at all, but rather what really got, got Simon excited about this whole Christianity thing was the signs, was the miracles that Philip seemed to be able to perform as he was outdoing his own magic ministry. So Simon latches on to Philip. You know, and the text says, look at what it says. It says, after being baptized, Simon continued with Philip. Almost as if the magician was trying to, to ride the coattails of power and influence that Philip now had over the people. You see, those who idolize authority and power and influence will sometimes infiltrate the church. Like wolves in sheep's clothing, they can quite easily begin to dupe other people, other Christians in particular, making them seem like they're, they're truly sincere. But eventually, their phony faith and their lust for power will reveal itself. Like Simon, those who envy for power and find an outlet for their idolatry within the church will eventually be exposed. Others will, will envy spiritual power. We have to realize that happens. But we must also remember that spiritual power is given to every single Christian. And that leads to the third point. Spiritual power is given to every Christian. So Simon's going to come back into the narrative here in just a moment. But we see that Philip's preaching leads to a spiritual awakening among the Samaritans. And so the apostles resided into in, in Jerusalem. They didn't flee in light of the great persecution. And so as they're in Jerusalem, they begin to hear reports of Philip's ministry among the Samaritans and how the Samaritans were coming in great number to receive the word of God. And so the news of the Samaritans professing faith in Jesus was both wonderful to the apostles and a bit curious. Could the gospel have really gone to the Samaritans? Do the Samaritans also share in the salvation we Hebrews have in Christ? Here we have to understand one of the big struggles of the early church. And this is the question. Who is included in the promises of the gospel? That's one of the big questions that dominates the book of Acts. Who is included in the promises of the gospel? Is the gospel just for Israel, for those who belong to the covenant of Israel? Or is the gospel for all people? Now, that's an easy question for us today. But for the apostles, it was a big one. And the reason it's so easy for us today is because the apostles so clearly settled this issue. But in the early years of the church, it was a looming question, a question that will become more pressing as we continue to the, throughout the book of Acts and as we see Gentiles, people that aren't connected to Israel in any way, began to respond to the gospel message. So even though the Samaritans were considered wayward Israel, it was still a bit surprising that the apostles, to the apostles that these Samaritans are, are receiving the gospel of Jesus. 
And here's a lesson for us. We ought not to ever be surprised by whom God will save. So to validate the awakening that's happening in Samaria and to investigate the reports of people coming to know the Lord Jesus, the apostles decide to send out two of their numbers to kind of investigate, to check out Philip's ministry and to verify that what they've heard is taking place is actually happening. And so they send out both uh, Peter and John. And when Peter and John arrive on the scene, they affirmed the work of the gospel that was happening there. And they laid their hands on the Samaritans who received the word of God, and they received then the Holy Spirit. Until Peter and John arrived, they had only been baptized in the name of Christ, but had yet received the Holy Spirit. Now, these verses have caused a lot of confusion, and it raises an important question. Was the, the filling of the Holy Spirit separate from their faith and baptism? And is that normal? Is that the way it happens today in the Christian life? Is there a filling of the Holy Spirit that happens after someone has made a profession of faith and trusted in Christ? What's going on here, and what does it mean for us today? So these are really important questions that a lot of Christians are very confused about. So let me try to, to help us navigate what's going on here. And let me try to lay out the different ways that Christians have tried to understand this passage before I lay out what I believe to be the correct way of understanding what's happening here in Acts chapter 8. So some people might suggest that this passage teaches that not every Christian receives the Holy Spirit at conversion. That instead you need to receive a second experience, what's often called a baptism of the Holy Spirit. And those who hold this view believe that you can be a born-again believer in Jesus and yet not have the Holy Spirit for an extended period of time. Another position teaches that the Samaritans were, were genuine believers, and they had the, the Holy Spirit in some small measure, but it wasn't until Peter and John laid their hands on them and prayed for them that they received the supernatural spiritual gifts of the Holy Spirit. The Samaritans had the Holy Spirit, yes, when they believed, but not the power of the Holy Spirit manifested in the spiritual gifts. And still some would say that the Samaritans were not really saved at all. Until Peter and John came, they weren't Christians at all. They had faith and been baptized, but that was deficient faith, a deficient baptism, because, the, because they didn't have the Holy Spirit. They had to have this second experience, this baptism of the Holy Spirit, in order to be saved. And so this baptism of the Holy Spirit, as it's talked about today, is manifested by the speaking of tongues. And so there are some today who would believe that you aren't genuinely saved until you've received the Holy Spirit and have spoken in tongues. Now, I believe that there are some major problems with with all of those, those three views that I just shared with you. Many of them tamper with the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And so how do we understand this passage? And what explains why so many Christians, I think, get this wrong? Well, these assortment of errors all stem from a failure to understand the unique moment of church history and the arrival of the gospel to a new group of people. That's where the, the problem stems from. 
Because I believe that the Holy Spirit was unusually withheld so that the apostles had to come and verify the work of the gospel among the Samaritans. Remember, the Jews and the Samaritans strongly disliked each other. There's racial tension and animosity between the two. And we see that the gospel now is going out of Jerusalem. It's moving into a new area for the very first time into Samaria as it's moving into the surrounding nation. And as the gospel goes to a new people, the Lord wanted the apostles to bear witness to the Samaritans' faith and to see the coming of the Spirit upon these people with their own eyes so that they might verify that the gospel of grace has now gone to the Samaritans. This is the same reason why God would send Peter to take the gospel to the Gentile Cornelius that we'll see later on in the book of Acts. So that John, so that Peter and John now have went out from Samaria to Samaria so they could authenticate with their own eyes the advance of the gospel to a new people group. And so as the apostles laid their hands on the Samaritans and they received the Holy Spirit, it's an authentication of the unity that the Hebrew Christians and the Samaritan Christians have together. They possess the same spirit. And Peter and John, leaders of the church, are there to authenticate this incorporation of the Samaritans into the church of Christ. So the delay between faith and the giving of the Holy Spirit is not a normal thing. But in Acts, it marks a milestone of incorporation of a new group of people into the kingdom of God. So the regular pattern of the New Testament that we see throughout the scriptures is that we are given the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit at the moment of our conversion, when we repent and trust in Jesus. At the time of our faith in Christ, the Spirit has regenerated our hearts and has responded, uh, you want to fix this stuff? It's fine. Okay. Um, has responded uh, in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Spirit has regenerated our hearts and has taken up residence within us. After all, it is the work of the Holy Spirit that enables our belief. So the indwelling Holy Spirit in our hearts is what unites us together as other Christians, with other Christians, even across racial lines and ethnic lines. The same Spirit that that the apostles received at Pentecost is given to the Samaritans in their own sort of Pentecost, a Samaritan version of Pentecost, if you will. So every believer in Jesus possesses this spiritual power and is given to us by the Holy Spirit. And though the Holy Spirit gives different gifts to different Christians in different ways and different intensities, all of us in Christ possess the same Holy Spirit. And so as the Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit, we see that Simon is amazed at this power. As he sees Peter and John, they're laying hands on believing Samaritans, and we see that they receive the Holy Spirit. Simon is amazed at this ability and leads him to make a request that ultimately exposes what Simon really values. He wants the power, and he wants the ability to give that power to others. However, we learn that spiritual power cannot be purchased. And that leads, fourthly, that spiritual power cannot be purchased. Simon wants power. And he not only wants that power, but he wants that ability to give it to other people. So as he sees Peter and John doing this, he decides to go up and make them a bit of a business proposition, right? A franchise agreement, if you will, right? He goes up and he says, all right, I'm going to, uh, here's some money, guys. I'll give you some money, 
if you give me this ability to lay hands on people and have them receive the Holy Spirit. Simon attempts to buy spiritual power and authority with cold, hard cash. See, Simon's desire to purchase authority here led to the coining of a new term in the English dictionary, right? This term called simony. What is that? Well, simony is the attempt to buy or purchase a church office with money. And simony became a big problem throughout the the history of the church, particularly in the Catholic church for many years, as very wealthy and rich and affluent men would buy the office of priesthood through a bribe, and they would get the office of a priesthood or, or of a bishop position in hopes of being able to wield the authority and the power and the influence that comes from holding that preeminent office. And sadly, there was a lot of back deal exchanging of funds highlighting the full-on corruption of the church. So in 1518, Albert of Brandenburg purchased a cardinal position in Germany from Pope Leo X. And he borrowed a large amount of money so that he could secure the office. And he struck an agreement with the Pope to sell indulgences in his region to help recoup his investments in this office. And so the only catch, the Pope said, sure, you can do that, but you have to split the money 50-50. I'll take half, you take half, and, and maybe you can make your return on investment with purchasing this ecclesiastical position. So indulgences were these pieces of paper that you could buy from the church that would reduce the amount of time that your deceased loved one would spend time in purgatory. So Albert had to, again, make his money. He didn't just buy this office out of the kindness of his heart. He wanted some sort of economic return on it. So as he buys this clerical office, he says, all right, I'm going to turn to indulgences. I'm going to sell these. I'm going to make a killing off of them. And then I can make the money back for my investment into my church office. So as you might imagine, some people became increasingly disturbed by this practice and this corruption. And one monk was particularly perturbed by this, a man named Martin Luther who decided to send Albert 95 theses rebuking the uh, the practice of indulgences. So you could say that the practice of simony and the spread of the practice of indulgences led to the Protestant Reformation. You see, this practice of simony was named after Simon the Magician, and this is a practice that must be rebuked. This is exactly what Peter does. Look what Peter says to Simon as he gives this request. He says, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. You see, Simon's request to purchase the office, uh, to purchase this power with money, it exposes Simon's heart. And that his heart really isn't right before God. Even though Simon had superficially attached himself to Philip, attached himself to Philip's ministry, his lust for power was his true God. And Peter's rebuke here is incredibly sharp, very intense. If you had to create a modern paraphrase of what Peter is saying here, he is literally saying, to hell with your money. Simon's request indicates that he is not right before God. But rather than dropping dead immediately, as in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, God extends through Peter to Simon the opportunity for repentance. Look what Peter says. He says, repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord 
that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. You see, Peter, Peter attempts to help Simon to see what's, what's going on inside of his heart, to help him see how dire it is and how he ought not to presume upon God's grace, marked by the phrase, if possible. And so Peter is urging Simon to repent of this false god of, of power, his lust for power, and his attempt to purchase the spirit. Peter, Peter longs for Simon to realize the extent of his depravity and sin, and so he calls out to Simon in pleading mercy to God for forgiveness. That's what Simon ought to do. Call out to God, pray to God, plead that he might save you. And Peter goes on to say, Simon, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness, in the bond of iniquity. That's where Simon's heart is. He's enslaved to his idol. He's enslaved for his lust for power. And though Simon attached himself to Philip's ministry, Simon has no share in the promises of the gospel. He is, his heart is bitter. He's enslaved to his lust for power. And tragically, it doesn't seem as if Simon heeded Peter's warning at all as Simon gives a pretty lousy response. Look at what Simon says. Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. You see, Simon just doesn't get it, does he? Instead of responding with humble contrition from this loving and firm rebuke from the apostle Peter, and instead of praying himself to the Lord as Peter told him to do, he just says, all right, well, Peter, why don't you pray for me for these matters? So early church history presents Simon as sort of the arch-villain of the early church. And Irenaeus, the church father, speaks of Simon as the, the father of Gnosticism. As one pastor put it, what we have here in Simon is the devil joining the church. This is just as Paul warned the Corinthians. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. You see, Simon shows us that spiritual power cannot be purchased and that the lusting after power, desiring this power, is antithetical to the gospel itself. After all, Jesus said that if you want to be great in his kingdom, you must be the least. Any man or woman who lusts for power in the church ought to never have it in the first place. Devilish men and women can infiltrate the church with their phony professions and their deceptive teaching. And their only aim is not to build up the church, but to devour the church with their own pride and ego and vanity. You see, Simon's request was met with this strong rebuke from Peter because Simon's request contradicts the very message of the gospel and the very person and character of Christ. Because Jesus came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to make himself low, humbling himself for our sake. Jesus is the Savior who, who stoops down and washes our feet. Jesus is the one who, who humbly becomes our servant and goes through the cross and endures the shame and condemnation of our sin, who bears it for us on his own shoulders and who saves us from the wrath that our sin deserves. In Jesus' incarnation, he left behind the prestige and privilege of his heavenly throne, and he condescended and became a man. In his life, Jesus humbly poured himself out, teaching and ministry to others. In his death, Jesus suffered for us, bearing our cross and our punishment. You see, Jesus must first serve those who desire to lead the church. So the question is, have you repented of your sin? 
Have you humbled yourself before the Lord Jesus Christ and let him serve you? Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Have you let Jesus wash you and save your soul and make you clean? You see, Christian leadership is first and foremost servant leadership. Christianity is not about power. It's not about office. It's not about influence. It's not about control or authority, but rather Christianity is about following our lives in the pattern of Jesus, picking up our cross and following him and pouring out our lives for the sake of others, even at great expense to ourselves. That's what leadership looks like in Jesus's kingdom. Spiritual power cannot be purchased. And spiritual power is displayed in this Christ-like service to others. But as we look at this final verse in verse 25, we see fifthly that spiritual power continues to testify about Christ. After the gospel comes to Samaria, and after Peter and John authenticated that work with the laying on of hands as the Samaritans received the Holy Spirit, we see that Peter and John continue to testify about the word of the Lord as they make their way back to Jerusalem. They just kept on preaching and sharing the gospel throughout all the villages of Samaria. You see, spiritual power is given for the furtherance of the gospel message to new people. And this gospel has now come, it's now begun in Samaria. And those who are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit preach to everyone they can as they go they declare the riches of God's grace in Jesus Christ. So we conclude this morning where we began at the start of the sermon this morning, right? As the church, we must go with the gospel wherever it is God takes us. Even if we're just traveling from one destination to the other, we have the power of God's spirit to bear witness to the resurrected Christ. See, one of the things we have to remember about spiritual power is that spiritual power is never the point. It's not the point at all. Christ is the point. God empowers us with his spirit and he gifts us with his spirit so that the gospel can be shared with greater boldness and clarity. That's the aim. And I fear that far too many Christians today are obsessed with spiritual power that we have lost the reason it's been given to us in the first place. Those who focus on the supernatural signs of the Spirit sadly tend to miss the reason those gifts are given to us by God to begin with. God gives spiritual power to his church so that we might continue to testify about Jesus wherever we go. So may we praise God that he has given us his Spirit, that he has empowered us for ministry and mission and though most of us aren't going anywhere right now because of this pandemic, may we seek every opportunity we can online and elsewhere to share the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus. May we share the good news of Christ with others. And may we rely on the Spirit's power to make our testimony more capable than we could ever imagine. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the gift of your Spirit how you have poured it out upon all those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray, Lord, that we would be empowered by your Spirit to preach with boldness and clarity and conviction the truth about Jesus as our resurrected Lord. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would be honored, Lord, during this season of our church's life as we're unable to gather together. Father, we pray, Lord, that we would find ways and discover ways and to, sh and to, to come up with ideas in which we can boldly declare to our world 
the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the hope that he is as our Savior and God and King. So, Father, as we respond today, as we sing, as we meditate upon your word, Lord, may you work in our hearts. May you fill us with your Spirit's power so that we might boldly declare the truth of Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.